Well, I, I think this is day 37 of, of 100, which means we're over a third of the way done with our 100 days of pursuing Christ together as a church. Now, our heart in setting out on this journey together is that we would, we would faithfully, through God's word, through prayer, as we'll see next week, through fellowship, just place ourselves in the path and the presence of God to, to be transformed by him into the, into the image of Jesus Christ. But for this week, I, I wanna continue our focus on prayer. So last week, Terry, he kinda, he launched this into the Lord's Prayer from, from Matthew 6. It was Jesus' model for the disciples of, of, of how we are to pray. So when I was in high school, like, like Terry was, I, I memorized this prayer. And, and almost every Friday and Saturday from kind of the, the end of November until the middle of March, I would recite it out loud and in front of my friends. Now, not only that, my friends and I, we would, we would huddle in a little room and, and we, would, we would recite it together. Then when we finished, an, an older man who was integral in training and preparing us would, would passionately like, like give us one more charge and we would burst out of that room to to play basketball. Now, my early understanding of the Lord's Prayer was a locker room mantra in the hopes that God would give us the win. Now, obviously, I learned later in life that I had completely missed the point of the Lord's Prayer altogether. Now, by the time Terry was done speaking last week, he clearly demonstrated not only my, but I think just many others, that they have a misunderstanding and I had a misunderstanding of prayer. We aren't trying to convince God to be on our side in order to kind of selfishly get what we want. Instead, God has something so much more in mind for us as we pray. We, we, we speak to him, again, not, not to bend his power to our will, which is absolutely ridiculous, but, but to beg him that his mind, his, his heart, and his will, that they truly, they might be ours. In, in prayer, we ask God to, 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 to bend our will to match his. Three attributes and, and characteristics of God kind of caught my attention as Terry walked us through the, the first couple of verses of the Lord's Prayer. The, the first one is, is that God is Father. I loved that one. The second one is that God is holy. And the third is that God truly is the victor. So if you think about it, as, as we pray, we really wanna place ourselves in the path and presence of God and those are truths about God that must be in our hearts and our minds as we, as, we, as we then cry out to him. And in the last three verses of the prayer, I love that those three attributes of God form the basis of what Jesus tells us to ask God for, not only for our personal lives, but also for those we pray for. Now, what we'll find is that his will as our Father is that he ultimately will provide for us. That's what we're gonna learn first. His will as, as holy is that he wants to, his forgiveness towards us to be, to be real. He wants that forgiveness to, to then overwhelm us in such a way <clears throat> that we too become conduits of forgiveness to others. His will then as victor is that he wants to protect us from our greatest threat, not only evil, but the evil one. In other words, he wants his will, and that's what we find in verse 10, to be done on earth as it is in heaven in real and intangible ways in our lives right now for others to see. And that's what we're going to explore this morning in this prayer. 
his provision as father, his forgiveness as the Holy One, and his protection as the victor. Now, to understand prayer, it is critical to know that when we pray to God, we're speaking to the one who is completely sufficient. God, he doesn't, he doesn't need anything because he's the, the source of, of everything. No one besides him can even come close to claiming this. Now, in contrast to him, you and I are insufficient, which means we are completely dependent upon him for everything. This means that, that when we approach the throne of grace through the work of Christ, we do so as ones who, who are unable to rightly live in this world as he's created, apart from depending on him. God loves to give, but not to make us independent of him, but rather rightly dependent on him. He doesn't give in, in order to like finance our own personal goals or missions, but to supply what we need to accomplish his mission. He gives according to his will for our lives. He wants heaven and, and earth to collide as his will becomes real in our lives. So we, with that in mind, how does God provide as our Father? Well, in verse 11, Jesus practically prayed, and I love this. Now, now watch this. He says, give us this day our daily bread. In some ways, this request seems a little strange to modern people, right? For, for most of us, getting our hands on, on bread is never really in doubt. If I, if I want a loaf of bread, I just go down to my local supermarket and I have dozens of kinds to choose from. There's, there's baguettes and breadsticks, there's ciabatta and cornbread and focaccia and pumpernickel, and then there's just plain old, old white and wheat. I, I choose what I want and, and pay for it, but in some ways, this can create an, an illusion that my efforts or, or the system I live in are where provision comes from. Now, to get this incredible principle that was at work in Jesus' mind, look with me down at verse 25 for more clarity. Just, just go down there. This is what he says. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Well, yes. But then verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And here's the important part. Here's provision. Yet your internally, your, your heavenly father feeds them. And are you not more value than they? So when it comes to, to food or, or, or any other need, here's the principle. God is ultimately our provider. In the language of, of, of Western, uh, modern culture, we sometimes speak of like one person within a family as the wage earner of the home. They are, they are the provider or the breadwinner. Ultimately, God, though, is the true breadwinner. He's the one, to use another food illustration, brings home the bacon. Now, think about this. We're to work so that we can then provide for ourselves and, and for our families but if we're not careful, this might cause us to believe that we can provide for ourselves all by ourselves. But recently, or early on in the pandemic, we were reminded that our food and supply chain can get shut down quickly by, by just a, a virus. Our issue maybe wasn't bread, it was toilet paper. In people's like psychological fear of not being able to maintain good hygiene, a massive run was made on this, on this, what became precious commodity. 
all of us were right faced with the possibility of using newspaper. That wasn't like we remembered that none of us read it anymore. And suddenly also news on the internet wasn't kind of so profitable at that moment. We were reminded that life as we know it can get disrupted, not only easily, but like that. We are, whether we know it or not, we are utterly dependent. Even more, every time I read the Lord's Prayer, I sometimes wonder like if Jesus had an image of just God's provision for the people of Israel in the desert. God is as Father of Israel provided for them as they, as they wandered. Life in the wilderness, though, we know was grueling. And like we found out as we've been reading this together, people began to complain that it would be, it'd be better just to go back to Egypt where they had, they had plenty of food to eat. And as we learned a couple of weeks ago in our reading in Deuteronomy 8.16, God provided. Moses reminded the people that God fed them in the desert with this thing called manna. In Exodus 16.4, God promised to literally rain bread from heaven. In modern terms, God was Israel's breadwinner. What we need to know, however, is that this utter dependence is good. It's, it's how God designed life to work for us. When, when God created people, he, he created us to need, and he, he also created a world that can satisfy those needs. Now, we're, we're going to play this out more in, in a few weeks when we come to the practice of fasting and eating, but this reality means that every time we eat, which we must, we're presented with our absolute dependence upon God. Every meal, at least two or three times a day, is a reminder that we are entirely dependent upon God. It's why, why some choose, Christians even, I think, choose to pray before a meal. And when this truth is made real in our lives, going back to verse 10, His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. As we recognize Him as the one who, and it talks about this like in Acts 17, 25, he gives us life and, and, and breath and everything else. However, our, our, our utter dependence on our Father isn't just about our need for nutrition, but even more, our need for forgiveness. When you look at verse 12, look down there with me. He just says, and forgive us our debts. See, ever since humanity's rebellion against God and, and refusal to live as God intended, humans have incurred an immeasurable debt Paul summed it up in, well in Romans 6.23, right, where the, the wages of sin or, or this rebellion against this hallowed and holy God is, is death. That describes the fullness of this debt to which Jesus is return, referring. Therefore, one of our greatest needs is forgiveness from that debt. And here in this, this model prayer, Jesus then instructs us that the same Father to whom we're indebted is the one who also made a provision for our debt. Jesus, the, the one who tells us to pray to our Father to forgive our debts, is the same one who took on our debt, who bore our sin on the cross, and who gave up his life so that our debt could be forgiven. This is no cheap request that Jesus tells us to make. He knows far better than we do the costliness of our forgiveness. Because he bore that cost himself. So as with our need of provision of bread, we are, we are utterly dependent on him to forgive our debt. Now, 
Matthew probably used this, this word debt because it, it corresponded to the most common Aramaic term for sin used by, by Jews of that day. They believed that human life was itself kind of a, a loan from God. And when humanity lives contrary to God's intent for our lives, we incur debt. This, is, I, this idea is why A.W. Pink, he, he wrote this. He said, look, as creatures, we owe a debt of obedience unto our maker and governor. And through failure to render the same on account of our rank disobedience, we have incurred a debt of punishment. Did you catch that? We owe God our obedience, but instead we disobey, which now what that does is it incurs a debt of punishment. And also, I would even add this, a debt of honor for our, for our failure to honor God and appropriately as, as our, our Holy Father. Now, let's clear this up a little bit, however, before, before we move on. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your sins today, in the future, they don't change your family status with God. You will always be his son or daughter. As vast and pervasive as the rebellion of humanity was and is, the magnitude of God's forgiveness of our debt is far greater. Through the work of Christ, you've been forgiven the ultimate debt. It's paid in full. Yet while we've been forgiven the ultimate debt through the work of Christ, we still need to experience God's ongoing forgiveness. But sometimes people will ask me like, okay, so, so why? The reason is, is because sinning without regularly now practicing repentance and forgiveness affects the intimacy of our relationship with God. It, it keeps us from being in the presence and pathway of God, which is, which is what these 100 days and, and the rest of our lives, if we're honest, are, are all about. We end up blocking out joy and, and fellowship with God and, and, and others through the, uh, the barricade of just unconfessed sin that builds as debt and we become, in the end, just hardened. In other words, mounds of, of what we'll just kind of call right now relational debt from choosing to live contrary to God's intention for our lives builds up over time. And as this relational distance caused by unresolved sin is created, we, we begin to become, Hebrews 3.13, just hardened by sin. And this, this hardening as we keep moving through this verse is why we don't forgive others. Now, this inability or unwillingness to forgive is, is very important. Jesus gives us a parallel statement in verse 12 in these words when he just says, as we've also forgiven our debtors. As a kind of footnote to this verse, Matthew 6, 14 through 15 is, is Jesus' commentary on this request. The, the truth here is, is, is vitally important. Just look at this with me in verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So the first part of the principle is positive. If you forgive others their trespasses, well, then what does God do? Well, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Followers of Jesus should forgive as, as those who've, who've just received God's immense forgiveness. When our hearts are, are filled with his 
with this ongoing forgiveness for us as we constantly renew our experience of having the relational debt removed, your, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, and so you will then to others. The verb translated forgive literally means to, to hurl away. So the more I understand the depth of my debt, both my debt of punishment and my relational debt that has been and just continues to be hurled away, the more prone I am to do the same for others. However, there's a, there's a second negative principle. An unforgiving spirit is not only inconsistent for one who's been and continues to be forgiven by God, but also may be kind of indicative of one who, who doesn't know God and, and his mercy. Think about this, to receive pardon from our perfectly holy God and then to refuse pardon to others when we're sinful people, when we are sinful people, shows that we don't get it. We don't really understand what it means and what it cost our Father for us to be forgiven. There are only two reasons why we don't forgive. First, we don't forgive others not because we have never been forgiven by God, but because we've forgotten the extent to which we've been forgiven. The, the longer that I go without seeking forgiveness from the relational debt that has grown between me and God means that I'm not putting myself in the pathway and presence of God. The longer I'm not in the pathway and presence of God, the harder I become. And the harder I become, the less prone I am to forgive others. And let me just say this, if that's you, if you're someone who, who refuses to forgive others, your problem is not the person who has wronged you, but the relational debt that has grown between you and God that, that needs to be dealt with. Now, the second, we don't forgive others because we've, we've never truly experienced God's forgiveness. We never saw ourselves as ones who had an amassed, just an insurmountable debt against God. We never, we never saw ourselves as rebellious, refusing to live in obedience to God. We, we never saw ourselves as shameful for, for failing to honor God. We didn't come to Christ to be transformed into his likeness so that we might live fully for God. We just didn't want to go to hell or or maybe we, we go to church simply out of habit because that's what our family's always done. And because we have never stared at the immensity of that debt and, and felt the release of God hurling it away, there's no compulsion to do the same for those who've, who've wronged us. And it may be a sign, and I just wanna slow down for a second, that you aren't a son or daughter of the Father. And by the way, that is sobering. Yet, when we forgive in similar fashion to, to how God has forgiven us, something so powerful happens. God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. A reality of heaven is brought to earth. The world sees a glimpse of a holy God in whom there is no evil, who, who shoulders the cost and provides forgiveness from, from debt through his son to those who are utterly dependent upon it. This means that, that forgiveness is so much more than making things right between people. It's a picture of a greater reality between humanity and God. So, so prayer, let's just kind of work this through. 
is an acknowledgement, probably maybe even better, a confession, that we are utterly dependent upon the Father for the provision of our needs and upon a holy God for forgiveness from debt. We were also utterly dependent upon God, who is the great victor, to protect us from not only evil, but the evil one. We've come to a point where we realize that on our own, we will always give in to the allure of evil. We aren't the victor. We are completely dependent upon God to protect us. So then the question is, how does God protect us? Well, look with me at verse 13. He lays it out for us. He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So, so what is this temptation that Jesus was talking about? Well, we know, James 1.13, that God doesn't do the tempting. He, he, he does not put evil, right, in, into our hearts because he has no evil desires in his heart. Yet every day we live, because we are fallen and our, our world is too, we walk a treacherous pathway filled with temptation. In fact, there is no moment of your life where there is not a temptation to evil. Therefore, what Jesus was teaching them to pray was that the temptation does not now take us in. The plea is that, that he would deliver us from the evil we might do. And I would even add this, could do or even desire to do in a world full of temptation. We come into prayer knowing that evil is, is all around us and even within us, and we are constantly facing temptation. Now, this constant threat means that as we pray, we must have a heart that understands we cannot trust ourselves. In fact, we should tremble at the danger of alluring temptation that we are relentlessly facing every day. This appeal is for God to provide what we and ourselves do not have the capacity to do. To, to combat this temptation, we are totally dependent upon him. It, it is a plea that in whatever we see, whatever we hear, whatever we say, and in, in the place we may go, and in anything we do, he will protect us from our propensity to, to rebel. He will, kind of back to the text, deliver us from evil, leading us away from temptation and, and out of temptation as we even encounter it. Now, this delivery from evil is another way that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, but we need the Apostle Paul to help us land this one. We need him to help us in our praying. So in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he, he, he wrote this. He said, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This means while God won't tempt us to sin, he, he will allow things into our lives that become tests for us. When we resist temptation through his provision as the victor, through, through dependence upon him, we're made able to endure it. And the more and more we pass this test, the more and more we learn to depend upon God in the future. If we fail by being independent of God or dependent upon ourselves, it will turn into a temptation that incites our lust and, and draws us into more rebellion. 
The request in Matthew 6.13 is therefore not only a, a safeguard against presumption and, and a false sense of, of this security and self-sufficiency, but it is also the way in which we, empowered by God, the victor, we conquer evil. His victory is brought to earth in our lives and relationships. Sure, we know that we will not fully arrive in this life. We'll, we'll never be free of the danger of evil until Christ returns. But that doesn't mean that the reality of God as victor can't be brought to earth. And so we pray in this way. And when we fail to resist, when we, when we give in to temptation, don't forget verse 12, forgive us our debts. It isn't if we are going to fail, but when we are going to fail. And when we fail, we must remember 1 John 2, 1, right? We, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, let me give you one last thought on this before we finish. Some of your translations read, but deliver us from the evil one. Without a doubt, there truly is a spiritual enemy who, 1 Peter 5, 8, right, seeks to devour us and and 2 Timothy 2.26, capture us to do his will instead of God's. This evil one is stronger than we are, but not stronger than our God. Our God is the victor. And how we practice our dependence upon God by James 4, 7 through 8, right? Drawing, drawing near to him, trusting in, in the promise of his word. That is, we resist the devil. He will flee from us. That's so important. But, but let me finish by giving you an, an exercise that might help you as you pray. I want you to take five minutes at some point, maybe this week or, or, or even today, and write down all the needs, not, not, not once, but the needs that God our Father provides for you. You'll probably find that for the first maybe minute or two, ideas will come flowing out. The temptation, however, at that moment is going to be to just, I'm going to stop. Don't stop. The ideas that come after two minutes are sometimes the, the, the greatest gems. Now, when your five minutes are up, ask God to provide those needs, admitting your dependence upon him and, and thanking him for all the ways in which he provides. So that's, that's the first thing I want to give you. Next, take five minutes and write down every sin you've ever committed against our holy God, including, including the most recent now, you, you can make this private, so write even the, the ones that are maybe even hard to confess to others. Like your last list, that I believe the gold oftentimes comes kind of after two minutes, so keep going for that full five minutes. Now, look at your list. If it's anything like mine, it's going to be pretty long. If there are any on that list that you, that you haven't confessed to God, do it now. Then, Across all those words, just write, maybe hurled away or, or, or debt-free. But do this for this reason. The next time that you're asked for forgiveness, no matter, no matter the wrong, I pray that that list just becomes emblazoned in your mind and you forgive as you've been forgiven. Finally, take five minutes and write down all the lurking temptations that you're facing in your life that only God, the, the victor, can rescue you from. Remember, what comes after two minutes is very important. Once your five minutes is up, pray 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Pray, Father, I believe that, that no temptation has, has overtaken me that is not common to, to people. 
I know you're faithful and you will not let me be tempted beyond my ability. But with, and at that moment, just say each of these different temptations, you will also provide, Father, I know it, the way of escape that I may be able to, and this is Paul's whole point, you'll be able to endure it. My prayer is that as you do this, and I would even say this within your home fellowship groups, I would even do this right now. And do this in such a way that you constantly come back to it over and over. And I believe these lists will help place you in the presence and pathway of God so that you might be the man or woman God has designed you to be. I want you, when you, when you ask the question, who do I want to be, to say with boldness who you are. I am a child of God and my Father will provide for me. I am holy because my holy God has forgiven and continues to forgive my debt, making me holy through the work of His Son and continues to make me holy through the power of the Holy Spirit so that I might forgive. I'm able to fight temptation and be delivered from evil because my God is the victor. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you. Cornerstone, I trust that your heart has been stirred by the Word of God like mine has been this morning. Todd has called us to radical forgiveness, and he's asked us to take some time and reflect, to reflect on the multitude of ways that we as human beings, as flawed human beings, have been forgiven. And I know the moments in my life that I have either chosen not to forgive somebody or it's taken me a long time to forgive somebody. I don't think the scandalous grace that has been poured out on my life has been the thing that's been in the front of my mind as I've been thinking about those different people. Now, I just wanna mention one thing before we take this time. If, if you are in a, a relationship and someone is hurting you by breaking the law, we're not speaking to you specifically when it comes to the consequences that are gonna to come to bear on the individual that is hurting you. I would say to you, talk to one of your pastors, talk to one of the elders at the church, or just call the authorities and tell them what's going on. Forgiveness is important, but being hurt is not what the Lord has for your life. As we take these next five minutes or so, I'm just gonna open us in prayer and Todd's called us to just, to just take some time and reflect on the multitude of things that we've been forgiven for in our lives. And my list is long. So if you have a pen and paper, pull that out. If you just wanna pull out your phone and open the notes on your phone. And I'm just gonna ask the Holy Spirit to start bringing to mind the things that he would have us reflect upon in this moment. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you reveal the things of our heart. We ask you specifically in this moment, would you reveal, give us the vision to see the multitudes of ways that we have been forgiven in our lives. They are vast and your grace has covered them all. So we open our hearts to you right now and say, have your way.
Jesus, I thank you that your grace has covered every sin that has come to our mind in these last few moments. I thank you that you don't hold those things against us. I thank you that those things don't separate us from you. Lord, would you give us the grace for one another that when we find ourselves hurt in some way or we feel like we've been wronged in some way, would you remind us of how you have lavished your love, your grace upon our lives and how you remember those things no more. May we reflect that same grace in the lives of other people. May we not hold things over people's heads or ignore the ways we've been hurt and allow a root of bitterness in some way to take shape in our lives. We wanna be people that love people the way you love us. And we can't do it in our own strength. We can only do it by the power of you, the Holy Spirit. So Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this time. I thank you. I thank you for every single one of my friends whose stories are reflections of your grace and your mercy. You're so holy. You're so holy, Lord. We bless you. We acknowledge you. And we thank you for adopting us into your family. In the strong but ever so gentle name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Now, I know we didn't have a full five minutes, so I'm gonna assume that you're gonna take just a little bit more time, maybe later today, or maybe you'll continue this in your home fellowship, or you're sitting with a friend or a spouse, and maybe you take just a few more minutes and finish off that list, and then I would encourage you, there is so much freedom in sharing what the Lord is doing in your life. Share it with somebody you love, Maybe share it with a neighbor. Be a great opportunity to share the love of Jesus with a neighbor or a coworker. I love you, Cornerstone. I say it on behalf of all the pastors and, and elders. We love you. If there's any way that we can be praying for you, please let us know. Email us at prayer at cornerstonecme.com and you will hear from us. Lord bless you guys. See you soon.